I think back to the Cold War, there was a time when strategic deterrence and nuclear deterrence were synonymous. And when we talked about the strategic deterrent and strategic deterrence, we were really talking about nuclear deterrence. All of that changed, though, as we began to see that other capabilities had strategic effect. I do believe that we are going to have nuclear weapons for as long as I can see into the strategic future. And I believe that uh, we're going to have to figure out ways to use them effectively for the purposes that they're really designed to, to fulfill, and that is to make sure they're never used again. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. And in this episode, MWI's Major Jake Moraldi talks to retired U.S. Air Force General Bob Kaler. In 2013, General Kaler finished an impressive 39-year military career that culminated in his command of the U.S. Military's Strategic Command, better known as STRATCOM. General Kaler talks about the role of nuclear weapons in U.S. strategy, major changes to the ways in which we conceptualize things like deterrence, as well as the shifting global strategic landscape and what that means for the United States and the U.S. military. Before we get to the conversation, just a couple notes. First, hopefully you're already subscribed to the MWI podcast, but if not, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, pretty much any place you get your podcasts. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Jake Moraldi and General Bob Kaler. General Keller, thank you for sitting down to talk with us today. Um, I appreciate you making the trip. Um, I want to jump right in for people that maybe aren't familiar um, with you or, or with your role as a STRATCOM commander or STRATCOM in general, uh, with just some basic background about yourself and then what STRATCOM is, because it's one of those commands that you, you see that acronym floating around but don't necessarily know what it is or does, or it just is... It's not like CENTCOM, where you see everywhere and everybody knows what that means when they see it. So if you can give me a little bit about your background and, and about what STRATCOM is, that would be appreciated. Sure. First of all, thanks for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be here, and I'm really glad, actually, that the Institute is uh, beginning to look at some of these issues that at one time were um, pretty well understood across the entire military. There was a time when nuclear weapons even if you didn't serve in units that handled them, because of the, the nature of the Cold War, there was a time when I think most everyone in the U.S. Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marine Corps had some basic understanding of deterrence and what the features of deterrence were and how our nuclear weapons served deterrence. And after the Cold War, of course, and then with our focus on other problems around the world, that changed. So thanks for inviting me and thanks for, for raising some of these issues again because we're back in a time where it's going to be important for us at every echelon really to understand the fundamentals of some of these strategic level issues. So a little bit about me. I'm an ROTC product out of Penn State University. I went into the ROTC program uh, with the idea. My, I got some advice actually from my dad a World War II veteran, uh, the Vietnam War was still going on, and he said to me, 
the likelihood is that you'll have to go. And if you have to go, what I learned from my time in World War II is it's better to go as an officer. And I said, okay, uh, what does that mean exactly? He said, well, you should go look into the ROTC programs, mm -hmm. all of them, and see if that interests you. Sure. And so I did, and I decided to uh, get into the Air Force ROTC program with the idea that I would probably serve for four years after I was commissioned, and then I would be back doing something else. Mm -hmm. And almost 39 years later, I retired. So it turned out that I liked what uh, what the Air Force offered. Apparently, the Air Force liked me, and uh, as as they say, the rest is history. And I was very fortunate. I think any senior officer you would have would tell you the same thing. I was fortunate over the years to have a a, uh, a series of great assignments and terrific mentors and forgiving bosses on occasion. And in every one of those cases, I think uh, I was allowed to grow and and take on increasing levels of responsibility. I started off in the ICBM force in a Minuteman unit in Montana. And uh, for about the first half of my career from 1975 until the end of the Cold War, which for me really ended in 1992, there are different days that people say the Cold mm -hmm. War actually ended. But in 1992, I was commanding an ICBM squadron in Missouri when President Bush uh, the first uh, ordered all of the Miniman twos and the bombers and the tankers off of nuclear alert. And to me, that was the end of the Cold War. Uh, I know people say that it actually probably happened a little sooner than that, mm -hmm. but follow the Berlin Wall and all the other things. But, but that was the single act that ended it for me. Yeah. And uh, from that point forward, I actually uh, moved into the part of the Air Force that was doing space-related things. And so about the second half of my career, I, I did space-related things. I had several joint assignments along the way. I served in the joint staff in Washington, I had been to several of the joint schools along the way, an Air Force guy who got sent to Armed Forces Staff College and an Air Force guy who got sent to the Naval War College. Mm -hmm. And so uh, those were great experiences for me. And then I wound up uh, at the old SAC headquarters, which has turned into Strategic Command, working with the Joint Strategic Target Planning Staff. I wasn't in the JSTPS, but I worked with them. And so that was that qualified. I didn't, didn't get joint credit for that, but, mm -hmm. but it qualified. And then uh, I was the, the uh, deputy commander at Strategic Command as a three-star. I became the commander of Air Force Space Command, so I was the component commander to STRATCOM, and then I wound up going back to command, Strategic Command. When I went back to command it, STRATCOM had, had three warfighting uh, elements associated with it. One was the nuclear deterrent element, one was the space element, and one was the cyberspace element because at that time, Cyber Command was a sub-unified command mm -hmm. to Strategic Command. And so STRATCOM's responsibility as largely a supporting command to the global war fighting that was going on, as largely a supporting command, our responsibility was to uh, make sure that, that the forces that we had assigned could do the jobs that were necessary to support those that were directly engaged in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. But there was a bigger responsibility at STRATCOM as well, and that was all of those things that I mentioned, nuclear weapons, long-range conventional strike, bombers mm -hmm. uh, that were assigned to me, uh, space assets and cyberspace assets were all part of the set of strategic tools that we were to try to put together in a way that first deterred conflict, and then second, if, if uh, we ever uh, experienced the failure of deterrence, 
to put all those pieces together in order to fight and win. And of course, all of those pieces, whether that was missile defenses that I had some responsibility for, whether it was space assets, whether it was nuclear weapons, whether it was cyber assets, all of those things play in deterrence against this very widely varied group of adversaries we have today at some different mixture, just depending on who the adversary might be. So North Korea, for example, we emphasized for quite some time missile defenses mm -hmm. uh, and a sort of a nuclear club over the horizon, uh, but, but missile defenses. And so our job was to try to put those pieces together in a supporting way, but also to be a supported command, if that ever came to that. So it was a busy place, uh, the globe uh, and, and the areas above it. Uh, it's really a spherical battle space for STRATCOM, if you think about it, if you take the surface of the planet. Uh, I had submarines assigned to me as well, so we were beneath the surface of the water, we were flying in the airspace over it, and we were also in space, out to geostationary orbit, and so I viewed STRATCOM's battle space as really a, this sphere that surrounds the globe from below the surface of the water all the way up to geostationary uh, orbit. And so it was a complicated job. In many cases, we also had responsibilities to do some global synchronization, and mm -hmm. some of that has changed. Now we learned some things about that, where it's effective and where it isn't. And so some of that's now gone back to the joint staff in Washington, but, but by and large, I think the concept was right uh, that STRATCOM was to put the pieces together to deter, uh, fight if you, if you needed to, support, which was largely the set of responsibilities that we had. I didn't uh, command units that were directly engaged in the, in the fight, but I provided units in a supporting sense that were in the fight every day. And if any, I used to joke that STRATCOM touched every single thing every combatant commander did. Mm -hmm. And uh, people would argue with me and then I would ask if they used GPS. And of course, everyone does, and so that's one of the ways that STRATCOM touches everybody all the time. Communications and other things, missile warning and all the other things that we do from space and through space. So that was it in, in a nutshell. We spent a lot of time when people would come through uh, trying to explain the command and <laughs> how, you, how you ordered a piece of STRATCOM, if you needed some of STRATCOM, how you went about doing that. And I would also tell you that we, we had a great relationship with the regional combatant commands. Mm -hmm. We, we spent a lot of time sitting with those regional commanders and uh, with their staffs uh, trying to make sure that our plans and theirs were synchronized. So you talked about um, sort of STRATCOM's role in, in deterrence and, and in theory at least that's a pretty significant component of what STRATCOM is really meant to do is, is have that deterrent effect because of the, the effects that you can project out on the battlefield. Um, and you mentioned both sort of the nuclear deterrence and then a sort of mixed strategic deterrence. And I want to hit both of those, but I'd like to touch on that sort of mixed strategic deterrence that you talked about based on the adversary you're trying to deter. Um, we had a conference here a couple of years back about, you know, the how do we define strategic deterrence in the 21st century and, and what does that look like? And I'm curious what, when you were in STRATCOM, what problem sets and what sort of force mixtures or capability mixtures you are putting against problem sets? Maybe not in specific terms, um, but kind of generally. What, what sort of assets, what sort of elements, what sort of capabilities uh, seem to fit the threat mixture that we're seeing out in the world? I would say there are two things conceptually that changed. 
One, if I think back to the Cold War, there was a time when strategic deterrence and nuclear deterrence were synonymous during the Cold War. When we talked about strategic forces, what we really meant was nuclear forces. And when we talked about the strategic deterrent and strategic deterrence, we were really talking about nuclear deterrence. All of that changed, though as we began to see that other capabilities had strategic effect. And so today, our view is that strategic deterrence is, is formed when you apply a lot of different strategic, in the true sense of the word strategic, tools to the problem to include things like missile defenses and to include things like ISR and to include things like power projection and mm -hmm. to include things like long-range conventional strike to include nuclear weapons, they all have a different effect in, in the deterrence calculus depending on who the adversary is. And so number two big conceptual change was that one size does not fit all when we're talking about deterrence. When we're talking about deterrence, we started to coin the phrase, and, and we didn't invent it at STRATCOM, but we started to use the phrase called tailored deterrence. Mm -hmm. That was a phrase that got used at the National Defense University some. Uh, we've kind of picked it up from them, and today, if you look at the most recent nuclear posture review that was signed by Secretary Mattis here a couple of months ago, you would find that the phrase tailored deterrence appears prominently throughout the nuclear posture review. So it's about matching those tools to the specific adversaries. That's a tougher challenge, by the way, than it is to say I'm trying to deter one monolith mm -hmm. who has some kind of circuit breaker control over all of the people that are part of their block, right. which used to be the case both in the NATO block and in the Warsaw Pact block. There was somebody that sat at the top of those pyramids and said, we're going to do this and we're not going to do that, and they could make it stick, pretty much. That is no longer the case. The two nuclear superpowers, and I don't think that Russia is a superpower in any other way other than in their nuclear forces, but but the two nuclear superpowers today don't necessarily have circuit breaker control over everybody under them uh, because technically they're not all under them mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis like we were when we were all aligned facing one another over the, the German border. So it's a much harder um, proposition today to talk about tailored deterrence. In the Cold War, when we thought about the Soviet Union, by the time we got toward the end of the Cold War, we knew a lot about them. We understood what the rules were about deterrence between both sides. We had practiced those rules. We got pretty close to abusing the rules. Where there weren't rules, we discovered that we didn't have rules and it scared everybody. Mm -hmm. By the time we got to the Cuban Missile Crisis and then even beyond that, there were times when I think uh, rational people that sat at the top of both of those governments said we can't risk these kinds of, of misunderstandings and so we worked out a set of rules with the Soviets over a long period of time almost 50 years and we understood them pretty well mm -hmm. arms control helped us with that by the way gave us transparency on both sides of, of that uh, chasm and so I think we understood them we focused our intelligence assets on them uh, some people have joked that by the time we got to the end of the Cold War, we knew about, we knew more about the real capabilities of the Soviets than they knew about themselves. Mm -hmm. And that may be true, actually. I, I can't say that for certain, but, but I can tell you from my own experience, we knew a lot about them. 
So now the question is, if deterrence is based on your ability to hold at risk what an enemy values the most, if you're talking about other countries, what do they value? What are the rules that they play by? Mm -hmm. What do they think about escalation control? And how do they, how do they view deterrence? Do they think that's even a valid concept? Right. Because deterrence is all about what adversaries think. And the classic equation is about denying benefits, imposing costs. Well, if you want to deny benefits and impose costs, you better understand what's the most important thing that they hold dear and be able to threaten those. I think that's still feasible. I think that it's, it's still a worthy set of concepts. I do think that in some cases we don't yet know enough about some of our adversaries in the extreme detail that we need to know in order to effectively put this tool set together. But I also know that there are going to be cases where with some of these adversaries a nuclear deterrent, a nuclear focused deterrent will not be credible. And so you have to decide what tools you can put together in what combination to be credible when you say, if you do this, we will do that. Mm -hmm. And the answer can't be a nuclear weapon in every case, because in some cases, um, that's not going to be credible. The final piece that I would say is that, that we understand today that you can hold a nation's um, critical infrastructure or, or some of its most important assets at risk at levels below the nuclear threshold in ways you could not during the Cold War, for example, through cyberspace, or uh, as an example, through long-range conventional strike, whether that's a cruise missile or, or some other means to do that, hypersonic weapons as they come along, mm -hmm. et cetera. And so again, threatening to use a nuclear weapon against any strategic level attack on your homeland is not credible you're going to have to come up with a different mixture of tools, recognizing that the ultimate deterrent always sits there in the background and that there are limits that those nuclear weapons impose that no other weapon imposes. And that, that touches actually a lot on the next question I had for you, which is, you know, you talked a lot about how, how that sort of tailored deterrence and, and getting the right capabilities and matching it to the, the potential perceived loss and the cost associated with, with an action by an adversary. How does, or how do you envision that concept sort of playing out given that the, the devolution of potentially strategic capabilities? Um, how does, how do you or how did you and your Stratcom kind of understand that, that devolution of, of capability and, and your role in deterring it? It gets back to what any adversary values the most. And can you hold that at risk? Much like other weapons, countries have nuclear weapons for their own security purposes. And because of that, the, the idea that the United States will reduce and lead a reduction that the rest of the world will follow may not be the way this is actually going to play out. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think our focus changed. The remaining thinking we did on them was really not about deterrence. It was about counterproliferation and arms reductions. I believe that nuclear weapons never left. I do think they're back for Act Two. I do believe that we are going to have nuclear weapons for as long as I can see into the strategic future. And I believe that uh, we're going to have to figure out ways 
to use them effectively for the purposes that they're really designed to, to fulfill, and that is to make sure they're never used again. So it's a paradox. It's been a paradox through the nuclear age. It remains a paradox that in order to prevent their use, you have to be prepared to use them. Mm -hmm. And you have to have the willpower that says that you will under certain circumstances. And our country has set extreme circumstances when vital national interests are at stake. So I, I think they never went away. Mm -hmm. I think that our focus on them went away. I won't argue whether that was a good or a bad thing. I think that we got engaged in other things. And I think there was a hope for quite some time at the end of the Cold War that we could put them behind us, that we would gradually eliminate them. You know, every president since Truman has said we ought to eliminate nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. That's not a Republican or a Democrat thing. That's been every president along the way. Uh, president Obama was very vocal about this, said that we would be on a pathway to go to zero, but most people didn't hear what he said at the other part of the sentence, which was, but probably not in my lifetime, and mm -hmm. until then, we're gonna maintain a safe, secure, and effective deterrent. So now we find ourselves in a position where the deterrent needs to be recapitalized. It hasn't been recapitalized for well over 30 years, and uh, the, the bills have come due. And so at some point, every military capability that's fielded reaches an inevitable end of its service life. Mm -hmm. And that's what we are coming up to now. And time's not on our side. The threat's not gone. And these are not going to go away. And so we need to just understand they're not going to go away and behave accordingly. So I'll, I'll end up uh, all the guests we bring here, because we're here at West Point, I, I have to ask. Um, if I'm a cadet or a junior officer, someone who's about to graduate from this place, we obviously are talking at a very, very high level here. Um, what, what does this mean for me? What do, what do I, what can I take away or, or how can I educate myself to, to make use of what we talked about in the podcast today? Yeah, I think the first thing that I tell all junior officers is uh, the most important job that you have is the one you are in. And in order to do that one as a lieutenant or a captain, uh, you've, you've got to focus on that one. And so all of these things are great context for you, but especially as you're starting out, uh, you need to rely on your chain of command to be thinking about these things and, and these issues for you. But having said that, I think one of the things that sets us apart in the United States military is that we educate our officer corps. We don't just train them, we educate them. Mm -hmm. And as part of your education, you need to understand the context of the world you live in. And you also need to understand that there is a bigger defense establishment outside of your immediate battle space. And you need to understand it because it helps you understand how you are being supported. Mm -hmm. It helps you understand how the uh, pieces fit together and how you fit into those pieces, what cog in this big machine you, you are and, and how the rest of the machine operates around it. It also helps you uh, be able to describe, I think, when you sit down with your soldiers, uh, why it is we're doing certain things mm -hmm. that we're doing. And, and the US military uh, while uh, we, we certainly follow legal orders, there's a piece of our military that always wants to know why. Why am I doing this? Why is this important? And I think the better you can describe 
how these pieces fit together, the better effective a junior leader you will be. Well, General Keller, thank you for sitting down to talk with us today. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, one last note to remind you that you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is the best way to keep up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're putting out every day. And it's also a great way to weigh in on conversations with others interested in the topics we cover. All right, thanks again. Thank you.